our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. What do you think our culture at large thinks of the label Christian? How about after the the last couple rounds of elections and inaugurations and the the, the urban rioting, some of the racial injustice issues that have crept up again and again over the past four, five, six years. What do you think culture, as they look at the church, as they look at individual Christians or group of Christians, think and feel about the label Christian? Or how about this? How, how do you think your peers would finish this sentence? A Christian is someone who... So if you're on social media and you have non-Christian friends, which is a good thing to do, you may have seen friends answer that question. You may have seen them fill in that statement. It appears to me that Christians are people who just vote for a certain politician or party. They don't mind certain kinds of sin. Apparently, if it's committed by their people, they only care about all this other stuff. In other words, what does our society associate with the name of Jesus Christ and the Christian church? Are there associations, things that whet their appetite for, I need to learn more about this character, Jesus of Nazareth? Or are there impressions and associations, things that actually send them running in the other direction? So if you're joining us this year, this morning, we are, this is part five of a five-part series, Supernatural. And this image behind me represents both something that on the surface looks very shallow, looks fairly inconsequential. And as we came into a new year together as a church family, we were saying, Lord, we want you to do something in us that develops a depth of faith and character, a resilience, a substantiveness, where we are inviting the supernatural work of God. So part one, we talked about the what of your lives, the vocation, the calling that God has on each of you, not just to show up to church on Sunday, but the other six and a half days of the week as you go about your life, what can you do with your life that truly invites the supernatural power and wisdom and grace of God? 
Week two, we talked about the how. And we talked about doing risky kingdom things that are beyond our own abilities because in doing so and calling upon the strength of God, we are relying on something that's just not our own resources, not our own wisdom, but is actually relying on the power of God. We went from there to the purpose of our lives and looked at just, I mean, a simple statement that if you're joining us from Park, both of our churches say, you know, we, we exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Our lives are not just about ourselves. So digging into this purpose. And then last week we talked about kind of the uh, with whom of our lives. And we talked about gospel partnerships. Well, this morning we come to the last part of this. And the, the question here, the, the little facet of life that we're talking about this morning is in what manner can we live our lives so that we're inviting the supernatural work of God? And I let off the way I did because I want to acknowledge just point one right off the bat this morning that we as Christians, we as a Christian church, and I mean the totality of the American Christian church, we have a reputation problem. Okay. We talked about this last week where in Acts chapter 11, the followers of Jesus were first called Christians in Antioch. And at the time, it was, I think it was a, a, it was a slight. It was like, you guys, uh, men and women and Jews and Gentiles and rich and poor, you've all come together and you're living in such a way, the only way we can think to describe it is you're living like little messiahs. You're living like that guy Jesus of Nazareth. And so to, to kind of slam them and criticize them, they came up with this term Christian. Well, I don't know that that's how American Christians are perceived today. And I look at you guys, you know who you remind me of? Jesus of Nazareth. And I'll tell you why that matters. I'll tell you what's at stake. In the words of C.S. Lewis, he says, when Christians behave badly or fail to behave well, we are making Christianity unbelievable to the outside world. Or one of my college English professors wrote in Companion to College English these words, Though the unsaved will not ultimately be won by our reasoning, they must not be repelled by it. The cost of irresponsible reasoning may be as great as the worth of a soul. So before I get into the heart of this message, I want to tell you this morning what, what is and what is not my goal. It is not my goal to lambast the church. I love the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So it's one thing to say, hey, friends, we have a problem. We have a reputation problem. We have a perception problem with culture, okay? We want to do something about that to be more Christ-like, but I want to cut carefully this morning. I've heard the analogy of like cutting with a scalpel instead of like a machete, okay? So... I'm not here just to, to, blast, to put, you know, put everybody on blast, okay? It's also not my goal this morning to argue with non-Christians or to simply dismiss their feedback as like a bunch of complaints. What we ought to do is when we hear feedback from non-Christians is we've got to say, is there even a kernel of truth here that we would do well to listen to and respond with humility, grace, repentance, take ownership? It's not my goal to eliminate all disagreements with non-Christians or differences of opinion, okay? The, the Bible says, Jesus says, we are salt and we are light. So sometimes salt stings a little bit. Or sometimes if you've been in a dark room and you walk into the light, that blinds you for a bit, right? It causes you to squint. And uh, Jesus himself is a cautionary tale 
because he always interacted properly with the world, and yet he was misunderstood, he was mistreated, he was maligned, he was ultimately killed, he was hated for doing the right thing. So my goal is not to say, hey, let's do whatever it takes to get on the good side of culture. Let's make them all like us and have a favorable impression of us. And hopefully you heard that in the text that was just read. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, our goal here as the church of Jesus is not simply to be people pleasers and say, hey, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to look like? And then adapt accordingly. So what is our goal? Our goal is simply to live in the manner of Jesus. I'll unpack what that means from these texts in a few moments, but our goal is to live in the manner of Jesus. That way, if we are praised by people, it's because we are living like Jesus. But if we are censored or criticized or condemned, it is because we are living like Jesus. And the point is, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive to non-Christians. And I say unnecessarily offensive because in 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says the message of a king on a cross he says that is a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly to Gentiles. The Jewish people are saying, we're still looking for a Messiah. We're not going to follow some guy who was nailed to a tree and was cursed. And Gentiles are just like, what kind of king is that? Your guy died. The Romans executed him. End of story. And of course, we know it's not the end of the story because there was Easter. But the point that Paul's saying is the life, death, and resurrection story of Jesus is scandalous to culture my point is let's make sure that the cross of Jesus and the values that flow from the cross of Jesus are the thing that's scandalous about our lives, the thing that's offensive about our lives. It's not our tone. It's not our manner. It's not the way we interact or think that we're better than everyone else, okay? So let's go on this little journey here this morning and look at some of this. I shared with you two weeks ago, 1 Corinthians 10. And that famous 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But we went on to show you that the very next two verses are actually showing you the other main purpose of your lives. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved." And Paul's saying, I'm living for the joy, I'm living for the common good of other people with an ultimate goal that they may see in my life a Jesus who's worth following and they trust him too. Or 1 Peter 2, 12 that we talk about a lot around here, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So if we have a reputation problem because our deeds, our priorities, our attitudes are not a reflection of Christ, we can come before the Lord this morning in, in repentance, in new faith, say, renew what's going on in my own heart, my own priorities, my own attitudes so that I'm a better reflection of Jesus. By the way, the church should have been way ahead of the curve on some social issues like Jim Crow laws, like the racism problem. We should have been the first to many, many years ago say the value of this person is equal to the value of this person. Nobody is anybody else's slaves. Nobody's beneath someone else. We're not segregating different races or ethnicities. We are reconciling things that are broken and we're doing restorative justice. The church should have been leading that movement on the basis and the authority of scripture. 
So I'm inviting us this morning to look at the basis and authority of Scripture and say, okay, where else do we need to be doing some things like that? And what's standing in the way? Well, what's standing in the way is point two, a reductionist position. What I mean by reductionist position is, you know people who treat all of life like cilantro? So cilantro is like you either love it or you hate it. And they're just that binary about everything. They're either or people. Like either you can do this or you can do that. In this last election cycle, I mean, I read tons of stuff. People would share articles with me. One article, one moment says, every Christian has to vote for Trump or you're not a real Christian. And like 10 minutes later, somebody else sends me an email, every Christian has to vote for Biden or you're not a real Christian. And then I get this thing from some famous pastor that's like, you can't vote at all if you're a Christian in this election. And that's just a fact, okay? And I'm like, man, who's right? Maybe none of them are right. I mean, they can't all be right, right? But do you think our society gets tired of that reductionist kind of thinking that takes really complex issues and just makes them black and white, makes them binary? You hear this phrase a lot and quote, people just need to, all people need to just whatever. And usually what goes in the blank is not true. At best, it's an oversimplification. So for example, Christians just need to stand for the truth. Well, do you agree with that? Christians just need to stand for the truth. And on its face, you're like, yeah, we need to stand for the truth. You know, Jude 3, earnestly contend for the faith. Yeah, sounds great. Stand up to corruption, stand up to deception, stand up to moral depravity. Put on the armor of God and fight for truth. And that sounds great. And it's true, kind of. But it's not the whole truth. Because you have a text like Ephesians 4.15 that refers to the importance of speaking the truth in love. In other words, content matters, the truth, but context, tone, attitude also matter. Speak the truth, yes, but speak it in a certain manner. And it's that manner that we want to focus on for a little bit this morning. By the way, You know a lot of Christians are just like, yeah, speak the truth. Just get it out there, and it doesn't matter how badly it just kind of chops things all to pieces. It's truth, right? And they're they're abrasive. They they probably come across as self-righteous, know-it-all. And there's been a pendulum swing with... I think younger generations that I see a lot, this, is, this pendulum swing is over here, and it's like, well, this person's tone is so much nicer. They're kind. And sometimes because of a reaction to one thing, we're like, this, this just seems nicer to me. And, you know, we'd be wise to ask ourselves, but is it true? Does it correspond to God's reality? Because both of those are important. So we're not looking for a reductionist position. We're not looking for truth without tone, or tone without truth. We're not looking for justice without mercy or mercy without justice. We're not looking for boldness without humility or humility without boldness. We're not looking for conviction without compassion or compassion without conviction. But so often we gravitate to, to one of those or the other. Now, I got an assignment for you in your gospel community questions this week. So do this together as a group, or if you're not in a group, Number one, if you're not in a group, get in a group, but at least do this on your own. I want you to skim through the Gospels and look at some of Jesus' most famous words. Or even just pick a story, and you're like, this is my favorite Jesus story. And what I encourage you to do is look at what happened right before that and look at what happened right after that. 
and think about what is this whole package of stories and context saying about the tone, the manner of life of Jesus. So can I give you an example? Matthew 11, 28 through 30, are, they're like refreshing water to the soul where Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, gentle and lowly, just mild-mannered and meek and unpretentious. And that's what so many people love about Jesus is he doesn't come in just guns blazing like all these other kings and false messiahs. There was a gentleness a mildness, a kindness, a reasonableness. But in context, what was Jesus doing right before he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart? If you're, you can turn there. He's literally pronouncing woes on cities like Chorazin and Bethsaida. And he's saying, if the miracles that I've done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But you are more stubborn than they. So it's not going to go well for you in the judgment. And then right after this, he's like walking through a grain field with his disciples. He's like rubbing the grain. He's eating on the Sabbath. The religious leaders of his day say, you can't do that. And he basically just excoriates them and says, you guys don't even read your Bibles. You have no idea what the scriptures actually mean to the religious leaders who are teaching everybody else. And so that brings me to this point three. This is our Redeemer's pattern. And as I look at our Redeemer's pattern, our Savior's pattern, Jesus' pattern, I'm thinking, how does he so often balance these things like truth and tone, like justice and mercy or conviction and compassion? And actually, I was thinking this week, I was like, maybe balance is the wrong word. Because I think when we say balance, you're thinking of a teeter-totter, and you're like, how much... How much of this do I need? How much conviction do I need? How much compassion do I need? So that kind of balances out. Or we think of a sliding scale, and here's like extreme compassion woman, and here's like extreme conviction woman. And we're like, so, so where, does, where does Jesus fall on this spectrum? He was just balanced. He was in the middle. And I think the reality is, and here's the key, Jesus was simultaneously and perfectly passionate and compassionate. So every situation that Jesus walks into, every story, every conversation, he is 100% passionate and 100% compassionate, which is why he always said the right thing, which, which is why even if you want to judge something, you, you have to look at it and be like, yeah, there's not really a better tone for the situation that he was in. So let's talk about these two words for a moment, passionate and compassionate. What's a passion? If someone says, hey, you seem to have a passion for this team, this priority, this workplace, this, this aspect of our culture, this need, what we mean is you have an intense drive. Like you're excited, you're enthusiastic about something. You are determined about something. And people are not going to stand in your way. If you have a passion to do a certain thing, you will find answers to the challenges that you face to make sure that your passion is moving forward. That's passion. What is compassion? Well, it's this movement of heart and soul of pity, of mercy. In the Bible, it's always an attitude that leads to actions of tenderness, kindness, empathy, mercy. And here's the thing. Passion without compassion 
You'd be like, well, I'm passionate about the right things. Good. And, and you probably are in many cases. But passion without compassion often just runs roughshod over the very people that you're trying to help. It's like a bull in a china shop. You may have a lot of passion for a lot of good things, but without compassion, you're harming the very people that you want to serve. But compassion without passion often and easily just turns into kind of a sentimentality, like a, a niceness. Like, isn't that person nice? Well, yeah, but they don't have principles that they're passionate about that guide that niceness. But together, the right passions and the right compassions are this powerful, Christ-like, redemptive force in our culture. And this is the manner that Jesus calls us to live. Let me give you another example, actually a couple from the life of Jesus. So remember right before the Passion Week, Jesus comes from a distance and he goes into the temple, says he like looks around and then he starts just dumping stuff and trashing stuff. He's tossing the tables of the money changers. John says he's like braiding a whip and like whipping people and running them out of the temple. And if you looked at that, you would not think this, this is not Jesus gentle and lowly, except that it is. Because what you find in that story is this amazing marriage of passion for the holiness of God and the house of God, which somewhere else he said, did I not say that my house would be a house of prayer for all the nations of the world? And what have you Jews done to it? You've walled it off so no women can come, period. But then no Gentiles. They're out there in the outer courts and they're coming from all over and they have these exorbitant exchange rates to even get something to try to sacrifice and you've turned it into a merchandise mart and you see that passion for the things of God. But simultaneously, what was it? It was a compassion for this person wants to worship Yahweh with the people of God and he can't, she can't because of what you've done and because of my love and my pity for them, I'm doing this. Passion and compassion together. Or what about that time where Jesus goes through a whole series of chapters and he's pronouncing woes on the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he's saying, woe to you for this and woe to you for this. And again, what is that? Jesus woes. That doesn't sound gentle and lowly. Well, it's a passion for holiness and true righteousness. But it's also a compassion for all the people that are like sheep without a shepherd. And they're like, look, God, we want to please you. But our religious leaders are giving us this massive law and saying, do all this stuff. And that's what pleases God. And they're like, we can't do all that. So is there any way that we can be right with God? And the religious leaders are like, nah, not really. And because of Jesus' compassion for all of these people, they're like, we just want to know and please God. He says, woe to you who stand in the way. And this is fulfilling, by the way, the prophecy of Isaiah 42, verse 3. Behold my servant, Jesus. And it says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's the compassion. But then he says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Passion. Okay, so let's close here, point four, with a reasonable path. Titus 3, 1 and 2. So Paul's giving instructions to Titus, who's a young pastor on the island of Crete. And he says this about how to lead the church. He says, remind them to be submissive 
to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And as I'm studying these verses over the last couple of weeks, just like my own Facebook interaction, it's like you post something and someone's just immediately, like some Christian somewhere is like, no, you're wrong. I disagree with you. That's, that's not clear enough. That's too specific. That's not right. You're wrong. Hear again these words and just hear the reasonableness of this kind of tone. Submission to our governing authorities. Just a general pattern of obedience, ready for every good work. Here's, here's something I can do to help. Speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, gentleness, and perfect courtesy toward all people. It's reasonable that followers of Jesus be reasonable. Now, reasonable is, reasonableness is not a goal in and of itself. Like, oh, I just want to always be perceived as reasonable. So I'm going to do in different circumstances, in different conversations, whatever is perceived as the reasonable thing. I'm not saying it's an end in itself. Just to be like, wow, that person is so thoughtful. That person is so nuanced. But, but let's listen to another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, where Paul has turned his encouragement to the church from something deeply theological to something deeply practical. And he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, the bookends are so important because you, if you just dial in on the middle and be like, yeah, I'm not very humble or gentle or patient or forbearing or loving. I guess I should do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on that this week. That could be a very moralistic, I'm going to work on that this week. And that's not going to help you. But there are these gospel bookends here where he starts off, I urge you to walk in the manner in which Jesus Christ has already called you when you were a sinner, when you were broken, when you had no hope and no God in this world, and he did something for you, content and tone, did something for you. So what would be a reflection of the gospel there? And he comes to the end and he says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit has already given you unity with people that without him you don't have unity with. That's a gift of his grace. Now, now what do we do to not mess that up? And that's the middle part. Well, we act like reasonable people in the manner of our lives. And I call this whole message a supernatural passion because compassion is a kind of passion. And I think this is, this is the pursuit. This is the manner of life that says, God, I want you to do something in me and for me, but also through me. I want to be a reflection, Jesus, of your passion and your compassion. And I call this a reasonable path because now coming full circle back to 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. Let me just point out the outsides and then the kind of the inside guts of what Paul is saying here. Because it's, it's a reflection of just, can we be reasonable to look like our Savior Jesus? So verse 2, he's talking about a boldness to declare the gospel. And he's saying there's conflict and yet you are bold. You are undeterred in preaching the gospel and living the gospel because you're passionate about the gospel. Verse 3, he says this integrity to speak the plain truth. 
in a culture that is often devoid of truth. Verse 4, living and speaking for an audience of one. He says, you can't go through life just constantly shifting and adjusting. Like, what do I need to say here to get these people happy with me? What do I say now? What do I do now? And you're just, you, you can't keep it all straight. But living for an audience of one of saying, God, my life is here to please, to honor, to glorify you. Then you jump to the end of the section that Paul read for us, and he's, verse 9, relentlessly working day and night. Verse 10, consumed with a holy, righteous, blameless lifestyle. Verses 11 and 12, now he's like, I exhort you, I encourage you, I urge you. And he's like charging them, and he's saying authoritatively, this is how you got to live. And then right in the middle of that, he's like gentle and caring like a mother with a nursing infant. Just being careful to make sure you're, you're being nourished and there isn't one quick movement that startles you. Verse 8, sacrificially loving, willing to share for the good of other people. He's talking again about the compassion right there in the heart of that text, surrounded by the passions of Christ. And I gave you 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, because you can clearly hear Paul saying in that short text, it's boldness, but it's also humility. It's gentle and it's assertive. It's truth and it's grace. It's conviction and it's compassion. Because this is the life of Jesus. So three diagnostic questions for you here in closing. Number one, what are you passionate about? Or who? What causes? What priorities? What principles? What values? What convictions? What beliefs? In other words, what really excites you and motivates you? And you're like, yes, I'm going to go do this. I believe in this. And nothing's going to stop me because I'm passionate about this. And you all have some of those things. What do you not care that other people know that you intentionally pursue? That's a passion. Okay, and I invite you to write some of those down. This is what I'm passionate about. Now, do your passions align with the passions of Jesus? Do you know what kinds of things he was passionate about? Do you, do you read enough of the Gospels and get enough of Scripture in you and have his Spirit living in you and working through you where you're like, I, I know what Jesus was passionate about. So that's the first question. What are you passionate about? Number two, what are you compassionate about? What breaks your heart? What stirs empathy and pity? What moves you to action? I remember many, many years ago, I had a friend who was just like intractable, like nothing, no emotions, no pity. I mean, he could walk past the, the most pitiful situation of tears and bloodshed and weeping and pain and it just nothing. And I talked to him about that one time. Like, why, why is it that you seem to experience no compassion around something that should move you to tears, that should break your heart? And he said, that's just not my personality. So fast forward a few months and I was watching the Super Bowl with him at a big college Super Bowl party and his team suddenly was losing and he was in angst, and his team lost, and he was weeping. And I was like, oh, so you do have compassion, just not for anything important. 
See, we, we all have stuff. I don't know, I don't care like what your personality is or what number you think you are or what like spirit animal or whatever on your diagnostic test that you've done. It doesn't matter. Like something breaks your heart. Something stirs pity. Something moves you and you're like, that hurts. And again, my question is, do your compassions align with the compassions of Jesus? In just a moment, the worship team is going to come back up here and we're going to sing the song Hosanna. And I asked for us to do this song because there's a line in there where we're asking God, break my heart for what breaks yours. Don't just let my heart break over meaningless, foolish stuff that breaks the hearts of other people. God, I want my heart to be broken over the things that I see that break your heart. And again, niceness is not the goal. Being a nuanced person is not the goal. The goal is I want to reflect the manner of Jesus, the passion and the compassion of Jesus. And by the way, as you're thinking about this is what I'm passionate about and this is what I'm compassionate about, make an alternate list and say these are the things I should be passionate and compassionate about and compare the lists and spend some time in prayer this week. Lord, would you do that in my heart? Whereas I see that Jesus was passionate about these kinds of things, as I see these are the kinds of people and situations that broke the heart of my Redeemer, would you make me more like that? And then finally, question three, so what are you passionate about? What are you compassionate about? Number three, what are you doing about it? I said earlier, compassion is an emotion or it's a feeling in Scripture that always overflows in actions of pity and kindness and mercy. And we need to, as followers of Jesus, stop divorcing orthodoxy with orthopraxy, where we're like, yeah, my, my doctrine's really good. I'm passionate about this stuff. Great. But orthodoxy, right thinking that does not lend itself to right actions is just worthless, Jesus would say. By the way, I think the black church has done a much better job than white evangelicals calling this out. You say you believe this stuff, you go march with me, and then for the next year, nothing happens that's different. Well, would to God that we would be people and that we would be a church where we say, God, I want your passions, I want your compassions, I'm inviting a supernatural work of your spirit where the manner, the tone, the context of my life mimics, reflects Jesus Christ, both conviction and compassion.